0: Welcome back, everybody. Here we go again. Episode three of the Vince August podcast. We had a little jump there in the song. I don't know what that was, Um, but I'm actually coming to you on location, um, although not in a studio. Uh, I am in St. John, U.S. Virgin Islands. We actually just dodged a hurricane last night. Um, But, yeah, I wanted to continue the momentum with the show and didn't want to slow down. So we're in a different room setup. So hopefully the sound quality will be the same. There won't be any background noise. Um, But once again, we wanted to continue what was going on. And when I say continue what was going on, the podcast last week hit number 21 in news and politics on Podomatic.com. And we were in the top 10 percent of all. All podcasts on Podomatic.com uh, with listeners in Ghana and Italy. So welcome aboard Ghana and Italy. Um, that, that's really great. We we haven't even broken into Canada yet, and we went straight across into Ghana and Italy. Um, love the emails. Love the messages I'm getting from people with regards to um, listening, being interested in, in the news and, and my point of views, and especially the people that say, you know what, I disagree with your point of views. But I, I really appreciate your perspective, where you're coming from. So that's the point of this. We want to have um, listeners that don't just agree. I want people to disagree. I want you to give me your opinions. Um, so long as they're educated opinions, I'll respond to them. If you're just going to you know, put crap on a message board like I see all the time, and I'm going to get into that a little bit today, I'm not going to respond to that. Uh, I'll respond to intelligent comments and people that actually want to have an intellectual exchange with me. With regards to some of the questions I got last week, one of the the questions was about women in prison statistics that I said, you know, the numbers are increasing exponentially. And someone said to me, well, you know, what is your backup for that? Well, I am on the sentencingproject.org website right now. In 1980, uh, the number of women in state prisons and federal prisons combined was 13,258. That was 1980. In 1990, that number went to 43,845. So it jumped by 30,000 in 10 years. By 1995, the number's up to 68,000. So a a huge jump. By 2000, we're up to 93,000 women in prison. So in 20 years, we actually jump uh, 80,000. And now in 2012, which is the most recent statistic, it's 113,605 women in prison. That is 100,000 more in the course of 32 years. So you can see that number is climbing steadily. And every year that I'm looking at on this chart, and if you go to, again, the thesentencingproject.org, you can see that number has grown in each of the years that they take this um, this publication or they put out this publication with regards to the statistics, there has not been a drop at any point. So it's it's going up. So that's the the facts to support that. Another question I got is with regards to the political process. And people are saying to me, well you know what, Ben, the reason why we, we support the Democrats across the board or the Republicans across the board is because of because of the partisanship in the country. And, you know what, in order to get things done, it almost seems like you have to pick the party that you think has the fewest flaws And if that party in your mind has the fewest flaws, well, you know what, let's go with that party just so we get something done. So that's why I go into a voters booth and go straight down the line, Democrat or straight down the line, Republican, because I don't want these stalemates and I want to get something done. So what do you say to me about, you know, just trying to get progress here and sticking with, you know what, this is a party that agrees with 80 percent of my principles, not 100 percent, 80 percent or 70 percent. Bottom line is it's more than 50% of what the other party um, that I agree with. So if if I'm favoring one over the other, it's because I want to see things get done. And more than 50% of their policies are in line with my policies. Well, what do you say about that? And And that's an excellent argument to be made. My question to you then in return is you have to be careful about – you know, they they all agree with my policies or, or most of the policies are in line with my policies. And if you ever want to see that come into practice, watch the primaries, because the primaries are when Republicans attack Republicans and when Democrats attack Democrats. And to me, if you really want to find out about your candidate, don't watch the presidential elections. Don't watch the final elections for Governor Senator, whatever it is, watch the primaries, watch your party's people attack one another to get the nod. And they say as vicious things about them, their own party members as they do about the other party's members. So the the attacks and the things you want to pay attention to are the things in the primary, because that's where you really see the holes punched into the party that you affiliate yourself with. That's where you can really see what your candidates are made up of. So I, I do agree with the one argument that says, listen, I want to see things get done. We we live in partisan times. And, you know, I, I'm going to pick a side because at least we'll get something done. Remember this. You can never really eliminate this, quote unquote, other side because there will always be a need for that other side. If listen, if every Democrat won. And we, we had a clean sweep in the House and the Senate. You know, uh, Congress was completely Democratic all the way across the board. Governor, Senator, is everything. All the representatives are all Democratic. You would need, or Republican for that matter, you would there would be an automatic need for another party because at that point, who are they running against? What are they running against? So then basically once we have this clean sweep, then we have utopia. There will necessarily be a division and split within that party for people to get, once again, here we go, the lobbyist, the backing. So if even if one party did completely take over, the competition and the desire that you see in the primaries for different candidates – to take control and to become an elected representative you're going to see factions split off regardless it's a necessary part of the process so really the the beast feeds itself by the necessity of the division you have to have a you have to have two parties opposing each other it's it's simply what politics is it's simply what governance is and the only place you don't see that is in places that have dictatorships. That's where you're not seeing that. Listen, we saw Egypt go through, what was it, three governments in three years. Put one in, you know, revolution. No, we don't like that one. Oust them. Get them out. So even when you think you have what you want, there's always going to be that division. So, again, great comments, great emails from people. You know, I love that you're taking a part of this. But ultimately, the political process Requires an adversary, and and the adversary comes in the form of wanting different policies, different lobby groups, um, and money. Again, we always go back to the same thing. It always comes down to money and the financial backing. And if you wipe out one party, those lobbyists will latch on to someone in the dominant party and convert them because money is the great equalizer, and you will always see that in terms of. You know how the political waves of the country are going to shift and the tides will turn. so great stuff. Uh, I appreciate the comments the thing The topic I want to jump into that has been all over the news for a couple months now um, let, let's go straight to Ferguson, Missouri, and I, I'm not going to get into the the aspects of guilt or innocence with regards to the actions of the police officers simply because I don't have the information. Uh, and without the information, without the facts, the one thing you must know about me by now, if you've listened to the first two podcasts, I don't jump to, to conclusions uh, as a judge. I weighed all facts and all evidence as a lawyer. I knew when to look at a client and realize, you know, when I'm getting one version of a story, I need the, the prosecutor's version of the story. Or if I'm a plaintiff, I need the defendant's you know, version of the story. I need to see those medical records from the independent medical examiner. Um, so I, I don't jump to conclusions until i see everything what i do want to address is the protests and the riots and i want to address it in the form of progress and here's the problem with protests and riots and what we're seeing one the media loves this oh they eat this up this is their thing they love protests they love riots because racism sells big racism sells big Big, big in this country. It it sells in the form of, you know what, we can just pack television commercials in. We can have all kinds of talking heads come on. We can have people yell and scream at each other on TV. We can show people getting arrested. We can show fire hoses and tear gas, and man, does that sell. So the media loves this stuff. And if you go on any message board, just pick any topic that is slightly controversial slightly and you will see the comment section on the bottom degenerate within minutes within minutes to racist comments to things about Obama things about um black white things about you know again all kinds of uh racial overtones stereotypical overtones halfway down the comment section sometimes almost immediately so this is a hot button topic now with regards to police officers again as a criminal defense attorney turned municipal court criminal court judge back to criminal defense attorney if you want to tell me that there are police officers out there that are abusing authority i agree with you 100 percent to me any person in authority is has the temptation or has to deal with the temptation of abusing that authority without question. I am one of the first people to say when it comes to police officers and putting people into that position, I think the requirements and the standards need to be changed. I, I think there should there's an age maximum. I know in New Jersey, 35 is the cutoff. After you're 35 years old, 35 years old one day, you can no longer take the police test. You can no longer be a police officer. I think while that age is an arbitrary number in terms of a top ceiling, I think there should be an age minimum. And the reason I think there should be an age minimum is for a couple reasons. One, and and I would draw the line, my arbitrary line is at 30 years old. And the reason that it's at 30 years old is because that individual, man or woman, has had the opportunity to finish high school, hopefully finish college, maybe go on to some higher education after that. But more importantly, they've had an opportunity to work in the work field. They've had an opportunity to become assimilated with the rest of us in society. Know what the stress is that you're dealing with when it comes to commuting when it comes to driving home at night, when it comes to dealing with the daily stresses during the day. So that when you are confronted by a police officer and a motor vehicle stop or whatever, you have a better understanding of why a person may be frustrated at that point of the motor vehicle stop. Now, I'm not saying that people, have a, because they have a bad day, have a right to react a certain way to a police officer. What I'm saying is, you know what, if we all can relate to one another... If we've all been in each other's shoes, it's going to be a lot easier for us to deal with each other as people. That's the first thing. I, I think anytime you've had an opportunity to be in the workforce and then get a position of authority, you know what? You can relate to to other people better. First. Second, I don't like giving anybody under the age of 30 years old, with the exception of our military, and even it happens in our military as well, the authority of a weapon, a badge, and a, a basically a race car and say, go out there and stop crime. I, I, I have a, a big problem with that because, you know what? I think of what I was like in my 20s, and I consider myself to be a very responsible person in the sense that I was going to college, working part-time, going to law school, working part-time, and part-time for me was 30 hours a week. I got out of the workforce into a law firm was immediately trying cases was saving up money to eventually open up my own office and by age 30 I opened up my own office so I was building something there during those years I would like to think that I was very responsible and mature i'm going to tell you right now there was a lot of mistakes i made during that time because you know what your 20s are riddled with choices. And a lot of times they're bad choices. You, you haven't lived, you haven't experienced a lot. You know, a lot of times you're just coming out of school and your only is school. So to me, to throw somebody 21 years old, especially 22 years old, the authority of a gun, a badge and a race car and putting them out in the street, a lot of times with a partner for six months and then on their own, That's a lot. In the military, it's different. And I'm going to tell you why it's in the the military. It's different because you have platoons, you have troops, and the pressures are different. You're not dealing directly with civilians. Yes, in Iraq, there was a lot of policing going on um, once the, the, the takeover was complete. Yes, in Afghanistan, there's a lot of policing. But for the most part, you're on a base You're dealing with your platoon. You're dealing with your troops. And, again, this is all information I've had in dealing with um, troops where I've done stuff at at different military bases, communications I've had directly with people in the Army and Marines. The information I'm being given is, you know what, you're you're part of that unit. You're part of the troops. You're part of everything going on. You're, You're working together. A police officer, a lot of times, you're on your own. It's trial by fire. Here's your gun, here's your badge, here's your bulletproof vest, here's your car. Go out there, go get to work. And you know what? I'm not trying to come down on police officers. That's a that's a tough job. It's a very difficult job, which is why I think if you had, you know, a more diverse background, if you've had the opportunity to be out and deal with different circumstances and different situations, I think it puts you in a better place to make some hard decisions. So I'm not trying to come down on cops. I'm not this is not about, you know, beating up on the police. This is about saying, "Hey, listen, I think this will help you do your job better." And in doing your job better, we're all going to have a better position. Now, getting back to Ferguson. If during your protests, you're saying, "Listen, you know what? We don't like the standards in which police officers are becoming police officers. We think this needs to be scrutinized." We think this is why the mistakes are being made. You've got me. Activists out there, you've got me hook, line, and sinker on that, and I will support that cause. But that's not what we get. What we get instead is this rage, this play on fear, this play on anger that white cops are shooting black civilians and that this is racially motivated, and it's always racially motivated. and. That's not the case. We know that's not the case. Are there racist police officers? Yes, because there's racist everything. There's racist doctors. There's racist lawyers. There's racist. You name it. Okay? Much like it goes the other way. Listen, it's not white on black. It's black on white. they are just racist people out there. There are people that don't like other races, like their own kind, and they're in every walk of life. Period. Now, with regards to the activist, though, you know, if an Al Sharpton, if a Jesse Jackson were to come out in a situation where there was a shooting that was justified, where a white officer shoots a, a black criminal defendant or a black assailant, whatever you want to call a black suspect, and it was part of a shootout and it was a justified shooting, if All of these activists were to show up and say, hey, listen, black America, African Americans, you know, this is where you make our cause different and difficult, because here we are trying to say we are the victims of racism. We're the victims of this. But when we portray ourselves in this situation, in a justified shooting, this is what everyone's going to point to. And if you look at the message boards, with especially with what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri, the ire, the anger on these message boards between blacks and whites, the statistics that get thrown around, if the activists don't address those and say, yes, this is part of the problem. You know, one of the things that I do as an attorney that's made me, I think, successful, and my first firm that I worked with was doing a lot of workers' comp Work. And and the, the list that I had was a list in in Hudson County Workers' Comp Court. And every attorney that came into this office, it was trial by, you know, again, uh, baptism by fire. And trial by fire, you had to take on this list. And it was 156 cases. And no one liked to deal with the attorney from the Port authority. And I went on this list. And I sat down with the attorney. And the first thing I did was I acknowledged all of my weak cases. And I said to the other attorney, listen, Mike, you know what? I got about 20 dogs on this list. On those 20 dogs, I will sit down with the clients and say to them, listen, you don't have a good case here. This is a weak case. This is a case that doesn't have value. And our firm just, you know, we're, we're, we're going to take them all in. But I'm going to tell these clients, listen, your weak cases are really affecting the stronger cases and your coworkers stronger cases. You know what? Take a dismissal because truth be told, there's nothing wrong with you. I went in and explained that to the other attorney, and he looked at me, and I don't know if it was for the first time, but this attorney appreciated the fact that I showed him my the weakness in my arguments, the weakness in my list of cases. And when I took out my strong cases and I looked at him, I said, now, Mike, these cases we know have a value, and I need to be paid, and these people need to be paid on that value. It made settling those cases a lot easier easier that's negotiation negotiation is you are willing to admit your weakness you are admitting to admit the weak points of your argument why because your strengths the strengths of your argument are that powerful and can take you over and and bring your cause to light that much more effectively that you don't mind exposing your weaknesses. You don't mind addressing those weaknesses. And that's what these activists are not doing. And the reason they're not doing it is because they don't care about the cause. They care about their agenda. And a lot of – listen, all of my friends that are black, that are Hispanic, that are of any type of minority, it's amazing how many of them, when they look at an activist – they say to me, that person does not represent my way of thinking. I don't know who put Al Sharpton in charge, but he is not the president or or emperor or king of black people. Neither is Reverend Jesse Jackson or any of these other people. You know what? We are more than capable of speaking for ourselves. And I love that approach because ultimately activist activists, have one cause that they're pushing their own because if the the agenda they were pushing was equality, the first thing they would do is again, identify the weakness in their own argument, identify the weakness in their cause. Turn around, look at you know the people that they're trying to help and say, hey, listen, you are not helping me help you. okay, by doing the things that you're doing, you know, and in this situation, black-on-black black crime is not helping us, okay, because we are being looked at as criminals that are, are doing a genocide on our own people. How are we then going to turn around and say that the genocide is really coming from white police officers and it's racially motivated? We're doing it to ourselves worse than they're doing it to us. So if an activist is willing to address that, then turn around and say, now listen, I'm taking care of our issues in-house, but you're not making our culture feel any more protected by the fact that the hiring practices of police officers in this country okay, is greatly skewed in the fact that there is a poor representation of minorities, there's a poor representation of women on police forces, the the guns that are being given to young people white men in race cars that we don't know what their qualifications are, I will be the first one to jump on that bandwagon and say, you are right. Let's fix this. But when that voice is coming from someone that refuses to acknowledge the problems in their argument, refuses to look at a justified shooting and say, listen, this one, they're right, we're wrong, and we need to stop this. We're not going to make progress, and what's going to ultimately happen is you'll have a situation where Mike Brown's shooting, people would normally be willing to say, you know what, yeah, from what I can see, no justification there whatsoever for that use of force. Absolutely no justification. We've got to take care of that problem. The reason that's not happening across the board Again, is because there's never this acknowledgement or rarely this acknowledgement on the other side about the weakness in their argument when there is a justified shooting and it becomes white versus black every time. Here's the other problem. When it's a black officer shooting a black civilian, there is no attention brought to that because it's not about police officer victim. It's about black versus black, and it's not as sexy to sell in the media. And this is the problem. Is the issue cop authority versus civilian, or is it white cop authority versus black civilian? Because if it's black civilian white cop authority, you're you're not going to win that argument. You're never going to make your cause. The cause needs to be about the authority that's being put onto all civilians. It's about police officers. It's about hiring practices. It's about the standards to become a police and stay a police officer. Listen, as an attorney, we have to go through continuing legal education constantly. I got to do 24 credits a year in New Jersey, 24 every two years in New York. Okay, there's constant education process. I want to see that in police officers. I want to see more community training. I want to see police officers not just in police cars with radios and shotguns. I want to see police officers walking the streets again. I'm not seeing that. And listen, I live in New Jersey in what could be considered a suburban area. Where is that? Because there's something about that cop driving down the street in a cop car with the, the light, the overhead lights, the searchlight, the shotgun next to him, the computer terminal, the radio. There's something about that that looks a lot less community than a cop walking down the street, saying hello, greeting shop owners, than a cop, listen, I see it during the summers on the Jersey Shore, than a cop on a bike mixing in one of us. And, and I think that's another way to address this. Again, so the argument with Ferguson isn't about right or wrong, whether the cop was justified in the shooting or not. I'm not in a position to make that judgment because I don't have the facts. This is about the way to make change. These protests are not helping that cause because it's such a radical approach. It's such a, a, a hey, listen, for lack of better words, it's such a black and white approach. And it's about. You're always wrong. We're always the victim. You're never going to win that argument. Never. So let's break down the argument as to what it really is about. It's about hiring practices. It's about training. It's about making sure these cops are more community-oriented. It's about getting some type of equal representation, which is the problem with— Listen, it's the problem everywhere. It's the problem in our government. Okay, it's about having that equal representation across the board so everyone feels that they have a voice, everyone feels that they're part of the community and represented. But I'm going to tell you right now, even when it comes down to black, Hispanic, Asian, I don't care what it is, when they put on that police uniform and they get that badge, that gun, that bulletproof vest, that you know, that that authority that comes with it, okay? therein lies the problem, okay? It's not about racism. It's about authority. It's about the use of that authority, and it's about keeping them communal. I see it in small towns where it works out, where the cops know the names of the civilians. Listen, when I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey, which was, you know, that's the county seat in Bergen County, a lot of cops. You know what? We knew the cops. The cops knew us. You know, we knew each other's names. You know, I could I see a cop and the cop knew my name and who knew who my brother was, who my parents were. You don't have that anymore. And you don't have that in between neighbors anymore. I, I know the people that leave, live next to me to the right and to the left, the people that live across the street and to the right and left of them and don't know anyone else. And that is part of the problem. We're not as communal. Maybe it's because we're very transient. We move around a lot. But, you know, it's. That's the argument that I think has to be brought out in in Ferguson. It's the relationship has to grow between officer and community. You have to build trust. You have to start building it that way. And you can't build trust by just saying you're always wrong. We're always right or vice versa. So that's my two cents on the Ferguson, Missouri, and the way to actually affect change as opposed to riots as riots don't work. All that does is make people, you know, say things that you see on the message board. Look, they're animals. That This is why cops are shooting. It doesn't work. Protest. I love protest. Know what you're protesting. Don't protest based on a, a slogan some activist comes up with. Protest based on the fact that, say, listen, we're just asking for change we're asking for something positive to be done with the authority of these officers. We're asking that these officers, the training continues. You, you will sound more intelligent. You will make more headway. And don't feed into what the media wants which is, you know what, listen, what do you think the media wants? They want to see black people being tased. They want to see the smoke grenades and the tear gas being launched into a crowd of black people. The media loves that. They want to get you riled up. Why do you think they're asking you those ridiculous questions that they ask you with the reporter and the camera in front of your face? My God, they play off of that. The media loves that. They want to show the stereotypical black person. They don't want to show the educated black person. And they want to show the stereotypical cop with the crew cut and, and the Oakley glasses and, you know, and, and that look of just, you know, everything that screams racist cop. So stop playing into it, people. If you want change, you have to do it the right way. And the right way to do it is by knowing what your agenda is and not continually feeding into exactly what the media wants, exactly what these activists want, which is this racial disharmony, this, again, this civil war, and it's black, white, it's Republican, Democrat. This is what our news wants. They love division. All television shows, if you've ever tried to write a a pilot for a TV show, you know what we're constantly told as writers? Conflict. We want conflict. Conflict sells. Well, if it sells in, in fiction, believe me. It sells in reality even better. Look at reality television. It's, throw women together and get them to fight. This is what it's about. Um, I, I beat that one to death. Let's move on. Uh, next one. Sayerville, New Jersey. There's a story coming out of Sayerville High School where um, seven students are being charged potentially as adults um, for hazing and sexual abuse. Again, I'm not going to get into the determination of guilt or innocence because there's still a, an investigation going on. But one of the things that because this had to do with the football team, Sayreville High School basically killed the football program for the rest of the year. Now, here's the problem with that. And I, I'm going all over the map on this one. I'm I'm taking up both causes of this fight. One, the argument is we're going to punish everybody. We are going to make everyone responsible for the actions of these seven student athletes. And if there's 45 guys on the team, you 45 guys are a team and you are strong as your weakest link. And if your weakest link is these seven people, well, then as a team, you win as a team, you lose as a team. I have to tell you, there's a part of me that loves that. I, I really do love it. Then there's the other part of me that says, you know what? Here as an athlete, I showed up for practice. I busted my ass in triple sessions in August. I got myself ready. This is my senior year. This is my junior year. This is my time to shine. I had maybe some Division Two scout come in, Division One scout. I'm trying to get a scholarship. And now somebody that I don't hang out with who just happens to be on the same sport I'm on is doing something I don't know anything about. I sure as hell can't stop because I don't know anything about it because you know what? I show up for practice. I go out there. I bust my ass. I get out of my uniform. I go home. I do my homework. I don't have anything to do with that. Now, I'm going to be punished for what that kid is doing. Why should I be punished for that? And there should be some type of remedy for that, whether the remedy is, that the football team continue without those seven players. Well, a lot of people say, well, the team's going to stink. And, you know, those seven kids are the best seven. Hey, who cares? You know what? You seven are off the team. You shouldn't hurt the other 38 players. And, and I'm, I'm using numbers that I don't know. I don't know how many kids are on that team. Maybe there's only, you know, 25 kids and you take seven off the team and, and it just, the high school can't field the team. My point is looking at this in terms of punishment, what's the right way or wrong way to handle it. Taking those seven kids off the team, hurting the team, and then they go out there and they get blown out in every game. Well, that doesn't help those kids that were maybe being scouted look any better and it hurts them overall, but at the same time, they're playing. So what's the right thing to do there with regards to play or don't play? I've always taken the attitude, you punish the people responsible. Alex Rodriguez took steroids, was found... To be culpable, at least, but through his this hearing, he never admitted it, but the culpability was found. Ryan Braun, all of these professional baseball players were found guilty of using drugs. They were suspended. Those major league teams did not have to forfeit their games. The Brewers didn't have to forfeit the games Ryan Braun was suspended. The Yankees didn't have to forfeit this season because Alex Rodriguez. So all of those players, now they're professional athletes, but they're still part of the same team. They're all wearing that brand, Major League Baseball. They're all wearing the New York Yankee logo or the Milwaukee Brewer logo. That's, again, win as a team, lose as a team. So we're saying in professional sports, well, you have your own individual contract and you're just basically a bunch of mercenaries playing on one team. You're not really a team. It doesn't work. I think that's a bad example for kids because then we're saying, well, when you get to the level of you're getting paid, then it's different. And I think in high school, in this situation, in Sayreville, I don't think they should have disbanded the whole football team. I think you take those seven kids, you get them out of the high school, you punish them, and then the team, hey, you win, you lose. At least you know the guys that are left on that team, whoever is left standing on that team, you knew you did it the right way. You can then uphold the tradition of Sayerville, And I have the same feelings about Penn State. To punish the players for the actions of some outside coach who would come in or someone else's actions, to punish the student body that really, what could they have do to stop? Now, you want to fire all the coaches. You wanted to take care of Paterno, which they did before he died. You want to get rid of the administration. I don't have a problem with that. But to punish the kid who decided on going to Penn State who wanted to watch his, you know, this school play football because his father went there and his father before him and is a tradition. And, you know, I, I did the right thing as a player and I practiced and I didn't see anything going on in any shower and any kid. How could I have stopped that? It would have been impossible for me to stop it. But now somehow this is my responsibility. You're putting this on me. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. How the hell am I supposed to do anything? And this situation in Sayerville to me is it's, it's similar. Now, who do we hold responsible in a situation where we say, well, you know what, the football team can't continue. By putting the rest of the team out there without these seven players, we are now putting the rest of the team at risk because now we have players that maybe shouldn't be starting, that could get hurt, that you know we have to throw freshmen in, and, and they're not ready for that. So you know what, we're going to take a year off. Or we're going to treat those games, we'll take the loss, we'll take the forfeit as a scrimmage. We're going to do something else other than that. Okay. If you can't play the game, well, now, who's to bear the responsibility of those kids that did it the right way, who were raised the right way and didn't make the mistake? And to me, without a doubt, without a question, the parents of those seven kids that are ultimately culpable for what those kids did in sexually assaulting, abusing and bullying the uh, the victims in that school those parents should be held 100 percent responsible end of story they should be sued civilly they should be responsible for any lost scholarships that could be proven they should be responsible for damages for the other kids who can't play Because they didn't raise their kid the right way. Because if there's somebody that should be responsible for the actions of those kids, if your kid is in high school and he is bullying another kid to the point of sexual abuse, you are not doing your job at home. You are to blame. You failed that kid. And in failing that kid, you failed the kid that your kid abused. And you should be held responsible Because I have said this a 100,000 times and I will say it again. You are not your kid's friend. You are your kid's parent. Stop trying to have a relationship with your kid as a friend. Be a parent. Your kid doesn't need a friend. Your kid has a school full of friends. Your kid has a neighborhood full of friends. Your kid does not need a friend in that house. Your, fr- your kid needs someone to be a parent, to be a disciplinarian, to give that kid guidance that they can't get on their own. And if you can't do it and your kid screws up in life, that's your fault. That's on you, parent. You screwed this up. And you should be responsible to those other kids. And maybe that will send a message to parents. To stop pushing the blame on teachers, on principals, on football coaches, on music instructors, and everywhere you drop your kids off, that you think they're then responsible. No, that's a bailment situation. Like when I drop off my car, you're just in charge of my car, making sure my car doesn't get dented while I go to someplace and come back. Okay? And it's the same way, parents. Stop blaming teachers. Stop going into school and saying, you know what, my kid should be doing better in this class. You're not doing your job. You know what, maybe you're not doing your job. It's time we start taking responsibility for the things that we're responsible for. And parents, you are responsible for the actions of your kids. And in this situation in Sayreville High School, those parents should be held accountable. And they should be punished civilly for the, 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 the lack of whatever... The other kids that weren't involved don't have the opportunity to have, whether it's because they can't play football, whether it's because they're going to miss out on scholarships, the emotional strain that they're going to deal with if they got to go for counseling now to deal with the fact that, you know what, this was my senior year. I just wanted to play football. But because some jerk down the street started hazing and sexually abusing somebody, now I can't do it. You know what, that parent should be responsible for that kid's therapy and whatever that kid needs to get over it. And that's the bottom line on this. Stop blaming everybody else. Parents, stop being your kids' friends. Be parents. Stop worrying about if they like you. Get them to respect you. And later on, they will love you for it because they will be better for it. Because these seven kids, if it's true what they did, they're monsters. And now they're going to be treated like adults. One of my first jobs as a lawyer just out of law school was I was interning for Judge Mecca, Daniel Mecca, in the family division. And I used to see 16, 15-year-old kids come in committing crimes, doing drugs. And the number one thing was I hate my parents. And we would have these parents come in and, mind you, these were not black kids. These were white kids from affluent neighborhoods. I don't like my parents. Why? Why? Because, you know what, my father didn't let me use the BMW this weekend, and normally he gives me the car, and now he didn't give me the car, and my father's a dick. And we would hear this from kids. And then the parents would come in almost like hat in hand, you know what, I'm sorry, this is probably my fault, I should have just let him use the car. What, are you kidding me? You want to talk about a bully? That's a kid bullying his parents. And we used to see it all the time, these parents were afraid to lay down the law, or they were absentee parents, because they had someone else raising their kid. Their housekeeper, a nanny. And listen, I understand there's some people out there that are working, whatever. But you know what? Be responsible. Raise your kid. Take responsibility for your kid. That's a big, big problem I have. And that's what's going on in Sayerville, And that's who should be responsible for what's going on in Sayerville. That's ridiculous. My final one is a quick hit with regards to this thing with the Washington Redskins in South Park. Uh, did another hysterical episode on on you know playing on this use of the name Redskins and people taking up the cause and oh my God American Indians are offended by this and it you know my issue again isn't about the use of the name Redskin which I don't have a problem with and people say well that's because you're not American Indian no here's my problem with the whole thing the people taking up the cause are not even Native Americans. And I can't stand it in this country when we have people take up the cause for somebody else because it's just, you know what, I need a cause. I need to be attached to a cause. So you know what, I'm going to take up the cause for the American Indian because they're being mistreated, man, and they need a voice. Let me tell you something. In this day and age, with Twitter, with Facebook, with all the social media, with podcasts, With every outlet that everybody has, trust me, anybody who wants to make a statement to defend themselves or defend their action has the ability to do it. And, you know, shame on people who feel like they have to take up the cause for someone else. And you know what? You're not being some hippie rebel by picking up a redskin flag and going down to Washington, D.C., and standing in front of Daniel Snyder's office and saying, This is wrong, man. You need to stop this. Okay, because if that's really what you think the problem is in the United States, if that's really the cause you're attaching yourself to, that the fact that American Indians are being mistreated in 2014 because one NFL team has the name Redskin on their helmet, when you got the Kansas City Chiefs in Kansas City, you got the Florida State Seminoles where a guy dresses up as an Indian with a spear, and you have this going on all over the country, but you think the Washington Redskins are the problem with the plight of the American Indian? Stop it. Get over yourself. You want to attach yourself to a cause, attach yourself to a real cause, attach yourself to the drug problem in this country, attach yourself to the homeless problem in this country, attach yourself to the economic inequality in this country and around the world. But if your big thing is the Redskins, that's the reason why the American Indian is. How about the fact that they were slaughtered for years in this country? That's really was the issue it now all of a sudden isn't oh my god here we go we're going back to the days of cowboys and then now why aren't there people mad at the Dallas Cowboys maybe the, using the phrase cowboys is somehow derogatory i mean we we can go crazy on this people stop with taking up someone else's cause that you just it's just the hot topic thing to do and you want to be in the news and the media oh god get over yourself Okay, there are more important things to worry about than what the hell the name of the Washington Redskins is. And if that's your big issue, trust me, you've got a pretty good life. You you must have it really well wherever you're from that that's your hot-button topic. Anyway, um, again, love doing these podcasts. This is, I, I feel, going really well based upon the reaction of everyone out there. This is me just ranting into a microphone. And trying to make a difference. I'm trying to come up with support for all of my arguments without making judgments. Um, again, listeners in Ghana and Italy, you, you helped me along with everyone else, friends, uh, supporters. Podcast was number 21, top 10% on Potomatic. Start listening on iTunes. Please leave your comments on iTunes. Leave your comments on Podomatic. You don't have to send me private messages. Let everyone see the comments so everyone sees what's going on. This is episode three coming to you live from the island of St. John where we just dodged a hurricane. Vince August, thank you for listening everybody.